You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so like I said, odds are you've forgotten. We started Samuel in December, so odds are you've forgotten some of this narrative um, because I had. Um, so if you recall back in December, we started um, Samuel really where, where Samuel begins in, in the first and second chapter of the book. And um, what happens there is something called Hannah's Prayer, Hannah's Song, right? So rewinding the clock all the way back. If you don't remember Hannah, she's this barren woman, meaning she can't conceive or have a child. And she prays that the Lord might give her a child, and God graciously grants that request. So she conceives and, and births Samuel, the prophet. And at the beginning of the story, we have this prayer of praise. Whoops, I almost lost my iPad there. Um, we have this prayer of praise that Hannah prays, right? She praises the Lord in prayer. This is called Hannah's Prayer. And I'm not going to read it, but it has three major themes. First, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Second, despite evil, God will be gracious and work things for his good. And third, God will raise up a king in whom we can hope. Now, hold those in your mind, because as I go through the rest of this this narrative, you're going to see these themes everywhere in Samuel, right? That God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, that despite evil by man, God will work things for his good, and that there is a future king that the people can hope in, right? So Hannah bears this son, Samuel, and he's a faithful prophet, and eventually the people of Israel come to him and say, we want a king, And Samuel says, we've never had a king. Israel has always been led by the rule of God. And despite this, the people persist in their questioning and they say, no, no, we want want a king. We want a king. We want one to fight our battles for us. We want him to, to lead us. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. So eventually God says, okay, they will have a king. Right? And they're given... Saul, who becomes King Saul. And as you remember in the narrative, Saul is dishonest, he's prideful, and he never follows the the words of the Lord, right? He doesn't follow the Lord. He's not marked by humility, he's marked by pride. And so, eventually, right, he tries to make his own way as king and and not God's way as king. He even says in chapter 15, Verse 24, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So Saul didn't fear the Lord. He feared the people, right? So eventually, um, even in this confession of repentance, right, Samuel says and knows that Saul has rejected the Lord's word. And so in turn, the Lord rejects Saul. Right around the same time of this rejection of Saul, A shepherd named David enters the story and rises to power, famously killing the giant Goliath. So you remember that story, David and Goliath. But he does so based on his humility and his reliance on God. So even now that theme is playing out that that God is opposing the proud, Saul, and he's exalting the humble, David. He's raising up a good king, right, to oppose the prideful king. And so also we see the theme that despite evil, the evil of Saul, 
God is using things for good, right? He's using evil for his gracious good purposes. So as David rises to power, Saul becomes furious and jealous with rage, and he hunts David, and David flees and hides. Um, And even with opportunities to kill Saul himself, David says, no, this isn't for me. This is for God to deal with. I won't kill him. And eventually, it goes that Saul is killed. And David doesn't gloat. He's not prideful, even though he's about to be king. He mourns and laments because he, he knows that Saul could have been mighty if he was humble, but instead he was brought low because he was prideful. Right, And as promised, God is at work even in that evil. And David becomes king and unites the 12 tribes of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem, names it Zion, and makes it the capital of the people of God, a powerful king and a prosperous kingdom. And that's where we get to the major arc of this entire story. In chapter 7, the covenant with David, right? God, or, or David comes to God and says, I've done all this, you've made me king, you've done great things for me, I will build you, God, a house. And God says, no, you won't. I will build you a house, right? God says, I will make a covenant with you, a promise that's unbreakable, that a future king will come from your line, a Messiah unlike any there have been, a beautiful look at a future king. Right, This promise of a future king, this theme. It's important because chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is is maybe the, the highest point of the whole Old Testament. It's how we understand what God is doing and what we're looking forward to in the person of Jesus. Um, but then we know that after chapter 7, this, this beautiful mountain that David's on, having been established a covenant with God, he falls, right? Some years pass in that prosperity, and David, um, when he should have been fighting, is instead home, lazy, and he wanders to a rooftop and sees a woman named Bathsheba, and he forces himself on her, sleeps with her, and she conceives a child. Therefore, to cover up what he has done since she's married, he manipulates her husband, sends him eventually to his death, and murders him. So we have David's Sin multiplying, right? A prophet comes to David and rebukes him. And David, unpridefully, right, aware of the deep sin that he has committed, um, is actually devastated and repents for his failure. The Lord forgives, right? The Lord forgives David and is gracious with him, even in the face of evil, but that doesn't mean that there aren't repercussions for his sin. We see that David's family falls apart. One of his sons rapes his daughter, Tamar. His other son murders uh, the son that raped. The son that murdered ends up leading a rebellion against David. It's an awful portrayal of grievous sin that affects the whole family. David's sin is multiplied in his family, and we see David lose control of not only the family but the kingdom. Tribes rise up against him. And so here we are at the end of David's reign, right? He, he fights a couple leftover battles leading up to this, and they're pretty victorious, but, but nothing what could have been if not for sin, 
for David. And yet, in his humility, he still thanks the Lord, knowing that his deliverance is from God. And he sings his last words. So in conclusion, and in the epilogue of this incredible story of of the first true king of Israel, let's see what he says, starting in chapter 22. We didn't read this, so if you want to turn there, you can. Um, This is David's song of deliverance. It's also Psalm 18. They're the same song. Um, So that's just a fun fact. But um, the song begins this way. I'm going to skip kind of through it because it's pretty long. David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. So a reminder that David starts with salvation from the Lord, right? He acknowledges that his life is held up by God. He explodes into this psalm of praise with this this worship. You are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. And he's humble. And then skipping to verse 10, it says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Right, A reminder of God's intervention for David. And then in verse 17, it says this. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in, my day, in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. How can that be? The how can that be is added by me. In the psalm. For we know that the sins of David are great and grievous, right? And we'll get there in a minute. Reading on, it says in 26, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Right, This theme, again, that God exalts the humble and brings low the proud. And finally, ending in verse 50, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Right, A reminder of David's covenant with God. So now remember how we began, that's how Samuel ends. Remember how we began Samuel, right? with Hannah singing in praise with three themes. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Despite evil, God is working for good, and God will raise up a future king. And then we have this whole narrative of Saul rising and falling, Samuel, or David rising and falling, and here at the end we have David's song, and there's three major themes. God will oppose oppose the proud and exalt the humble. Despite David's evil, 
God will be gracious and work things for God's good and that there is a hope for a future king in the line of David. So I think the theme of Samuel can be discerned by, by how Samuel begins and ends, right? It bookends the whole story with two songs, and two songs have three major themes. So let's, let's work this out a little bit. Pride and humility, right? First, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Um, if we see Saul, that represents the proud, and David as representative of the humble, then this is easy to kind of figure out in the narrative, right? Saul is prideful. He rejects God and God's word, and therefore the Lord rejects him. But David is humble, and he embraces and invites the Lord's direction, and therefore he is brought high. He is exalted. Now, we have to be careful here because it'd be easy to apply this to ourselves in, in a way of earthly blessing, right? But while David's humility does lead to earthly blessing, his flesh, his pride, does lead to his fall and earthly ruin, right? Kingdom-sized consequences for him and his family. But in the end, especially in this song, we see that David attributes all of his humility and all of his deliverance to the Lord, right? The Lord is who has brought it and done it. So Samuel teaches the people of God to prize humility, not power, but he also teaches them that God is the one who brings us and makes us humble. And we'll see that in the person of Jesus, right? Next theme, despite evil, God works for good. So um, looking back at chapter 22, verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my, the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. How could that be for David? We know what David did. He raped, he lied, he murdered. So how could this be true? Right, well, despite David's evil, and make no mistake, this was evil, despite it, God is basing his righteousness on something else. Right, he's basing it on something else entirely. Why is God gracious? Well, the error here would be reading these verses as... Um, as a testament to David's sinlessness, which certainly isn't happening, right? If we read these as a, a testament to David's sinlessness, then he's lying. Just like as these, are, as these words are entombed in a psalm that we can sing for ourselves, if we sing these words, then we're lying if they're sinlessness, right? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. I don't want that. But that's not what we're saying. It's not, it's not our sinlessness that David is able to sing these words, right? It's because of his fidelity, right? It's because of his faith. So when we look at the story of David, even in his grievous sin, we see that David never turned from God, right? Even when committing atrocious sins, when he is faced with a rebuke, he repents, he laments, he turns, he's devastated. He's humbled, and the Lord exalts the humble. So God, in the end, looks at him as righteous, not because of what he did or didn't do, but because of his faith. That even though he departed from the ways of the Lord for a season in grievous, atrocious sin, his repentance is a sign that this is true for him. 
It's easy to think that the Old Testament fathers are irrelevant, right? That we have Jesus now and things are different. Or at least that they were treated by God differently in some way. But Paul in Ephesians 2 says to us, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of your own doing, a gift from God, not a result of works so that none may boast. And the author of Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is applied to the church fathers too. Right in, in, in verse 32 um, of chapter 11, it's, he says, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japhath, David, Samuel, and the prophets through faith conquered kingdoms, through faith enforced justice, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight through faith. They did that. So despite evil or despite good works, God looks at David as clean, as righteous because of his faith. It's good news for me, and it's good news for you in the room, believer, because it's, not, it's, it's only God's grace that saves us through our faith, which means as far as you've diverted from the law of God, there is still hope for you. And the final theme and the most prominent theme in all of Samuel and maybe all of the Old Testament is that there is a king who was promised and we can hope in them. And reminding us of, of David's final words in chapter 23 that Cole read, he said this, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue, the God of Israel has spoken the rock of Israel has said to me, when one, one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant and ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. For David, just like Hannah, his hope is in a king that comes through a line. So for Hannah, it was a seed that led to Samuel that spoke to God, leading to King Saul, who brings us King David, right? God using evil for good. And for David, it's a lineage. Through grievous sin with Bathsheba, eventually we have Solomon. Again, God using man's evil for his good work. In which we know from Solomon uh, from the genealogy in Matthew 1, leads us all the way to Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Jesus. And truly, all three of these themes are realized in Jesus, that God will exalt the humble, that despite evil, he works for his good, and that a future king is coming. So Jesus was God coming humbly, right? And he's exalted. Look at his coming. Infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, infinite in location, comes to earth in the form of a baby. If you haven't been around a baby, maybe you don't realize how incredibly helpless they are. Right? They're they utterly unable to do basic things for themselves and their survival. Sorry to the babies in the room, but it's true. There's a couple I feel like. Anyway, um, it's true. But God trades his infinite wisdom for learning in an infant, right? He trades his ability to be everywhere for a fixed position on the earth in Bethlehem in a manger. 
and he trades all of his power for limitation. What could be more humble than that? But as he grows, he doesn't grow out of humility, and with all that power and authority that Jesus has, we still see him as a humble man speaking truth. It doesn't mean that he doesn't confront or heal or speak truth or perform miracles, but, but he does so bathed in humility. And ultimately, even before his death, he asks his God, could this cup pass from me, but not what I want, what you want? Not what I will, but yours be done. The letter to the Philippians wraps this up beautifully in chapter 2. It says, Have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So lesson one is that God exalts the humble and the only truly humble one was God himself in Jesus. Jesus is the true humble king. And he's exalted as the true humble king. And the next point is that, that despite evil, God works for good. So the evil that is the climax of the Christ story is the crucifixion, right? But God intended to use the evil of the crucifixion for his good purposes. Without the evil sadness and devastation of Christ, blameless, paying a penalty, then we don't have a death on our behalf. Which means our sin would not be put to death. And the beauty of his resurrection means that we're continually resurrecting as new men and women in the image of Jesus who first did it. Grace is the song that flows from the evil of the cross. As painful as it is. And we will, as Palm Sunday approaches, we will rehearse this lament all of Holy Week, right? We lament. But drowning out our lament is our song of praise that comes on Easter morning, right? So lesson two is that despite human evil, God is working for good. Human evil will still permeate our experience on earth, and yet God, rich in mercy, is gracious to us in founding our faith and drawing us to him. And so finally, we can hope in our king, right? The beauty of being on this side of history from the cross is that our hope is built on the person and work of Jesus that we can look back on. But we look currently to him as ruling and reigning in our hearts, even now on the throne. We don't have to draw this out for ourselves, luckily, because Peter does. Um, in Acts chapter 2, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus is raised up, and we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Right? So Paul says, yeah, Jesus is from David. We, didn't, we don't have to guess at this. This is the line. This is the king. Matthew even says, or, or Jesus in, at the end of Matthew even says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. So Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king David was promised. He was the better king that Hannah prayed for. He's the king of the prophets that testified that he would come. And he did. And he was humble. And despite evil in grace, God worked through him for good. So why does Samuel matter? Right? Why is this the word of God and not just a historical narrative? What does this mean for us? Well, I think, I think I would answer that in three ways. First, God is gracious despite our evil. Right? So despite evil in our world, God is growing the church. And we don't know why or how long it will be till this is all finished and Jesus comes back. But what we do know is that God is gracious in inviting us into an opportunity to grow his church, which means more and more saints at a heavenly banquet. And I think billions will be there. I really do. But that means that he's being gracious to us now and inviting us to share the good news with more and more and more generations. We don't wait in vain. We're not lazy. We don't isolate. We love God. We love each other. And we proclaim the gospel who don't, to those who don't know it. Right? Despite the evil in our word, world, God is using things for good. Second, we have Samuel because it teaches us that God exalts the humble and he makes low the proud. God exalts the humble, the poor, and the weak, which means maybe for the first time we can be honest with ourselves, right? And each other, especially in community. If you've been in a parish, this, this night has probably happened where somebody brings something really heavy and lays it on the group. Something that's happened to them, something that they're going through, something sad or evil, and their whole disposition is low and humble, right? We can admit that because, because God says his grace is sufficient and his power is best in weakness. This is a place where we'll admit when we're failing, when we fall. We can admit when we're wrong or we're wrong to each other. We don't need to strive for power or authority or seeming power or, or anything like that. Jesus has those things, and he has them through humility. That's good news for us. That honesty will offer, uh, we, we can be honest, and with that honesty, we can offer our world honest community, a place where they can be themselves. And finally, this matters ultimately because we can rest and praise and look forward to a king Who's already won. He is ruling and reigning, and although he will return, he currently sits enthroned, which gives us two truths. One, a present reality as sons and daughters of 
the king. Right? He's exalted on high, and so we are exalted with him. We can live into that identity as sons and daughters of the king. And second, the second truth it gives us is that there's a future reality at a heavenly banquet of the king, an eternal kingdom that we participate in, ruling under the only humble good king where evil is no more, right? So we can rest in our current reality and rest in our future reality. Death for us is not a door, or it's not, it's not a destination, right? It's a door. Death is horrible, but we, brothers and sisters, rise because Jesus did. It's not our end. And it should settle an anxious soul. So as we look toward Easter and we close the book of Samuel for the time, remember this, that all of the Bible points to Jesus. The hope for Hannah, the hope for Samuel, and David, and Abraham, and Isaiah, and Paul, and the disciples, and me, and you, that hope is found in Jesus. The hope of our world is the same hope, even if they don't know it yet. The hope we have found is perfected in faith in Jesus. Our righteousness is found in Jesus. He is our king. He has established an inheritance for us. That's the good news of Samuel. That there's a king coming. And it reminds us that he's come and he's won. It's the good news of the Bible. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. So as we come to the table in just a few moments, that's what we rehearse. That's what we rehearse. Let's pray. Glorious King, we praise you, Jesus. You came humbly and in the face of human evil, submitted to the will of the Father, died a death we should have died and lived a life or, and rose in victory to give us life that we don't deserve. Lord, we, we worship you for it. And when we see our own burdens or evil in this world, we don't have to doubt. Because you rule and reign, and although it's not fully realized yet, things are coming to pass. Because you said they will. Lord, would you send your spirit to the brothers and sisters in this room, and if nothing else, would they go out of here tonight, or this afternoon, and tomorrow as they start their work weeks? And would you settle the anxious soul and remind them that you're good? and that despite evil you work for good, and that the hope of salvation that they long for is realized in Jesus who has died and lived on their behalf. Would you remind me that? I forget it often. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I forget it often, Lord, but as often as I do, you meet me one more time 
eternally and infinitely and deliver me. Lord, you've always done it, so I trust that you'll do it again. You are my king. You are our king. And we worship you as such. We bless you. We trust you with the minutia of our lives and the big things too, Lord. We trust you with it. And as we approach Easter, prepare us for it. May we lament, lament the evil that led up to it, but may our songs of praise drown out the noise of lament for not only that time, but for our world, that you are good. Pray all this in your name.